You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection's streaming video service, The Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Each episode, my guests and I explore the month's new releases and expiring titles, as well as offering our recommendations from the Criterion Collection's back catalog of streaming-only titles. Aaron West, co-founder of The 25th Frame and host of the Criterion Now and Criterion Close-Up podcasts, joins me today to talk about The Masters, films by some of the greatest filmmakers in the world with titles that are only available on the Criterion channel. And a little later on, I'll be speaking with Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast to discuss some tips and tricks for using the Criterion channel on different devices. But first, I'll check in with friend of the show Michael Hutchins to talk more about the history of the Criterion Collection's online presence as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Stay with us. The 25th Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide. I'm here with Michael Hutchins, one of our regular contributors to Criterion Channel Surfing, as well as a frequent contributor to Criterion Now, the 25th Frame, and most of the Facebook groups dedicated to the Criterion Collection. He's joining me today to talk a little bit about the history of the Criterion Collection's online presence. Thanks for joining me today, Michael. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here. So you've been doing a lot of research lately into the beginnings of the Criterion Collection's online presence. When did the Criterion Collection start to maintain a web presence? When did they develop their website? What was that like? As far back as I was able to research, I've determined that it was sometime in late 1998, which is just a few months after they had released their first DVD. And the domain name that they used was criterionco.com. I suppose it was because they were the victim of a poacher. You know, those persons back in the early days of the internet who would take a domain name and kind of steal it, hoping to sell it to someone later at a high price. I actually remember the very first Criterion Collection website was that CriterionCo.com. And when they finally switched over to Criterion.com, it took me the longest time to remember that they had changed the name there. Yeah, that happened early in 2007. Yeah, it was a very cumbersome website. It was very difficult to navigate. It definitely felt like the early days of the internet. Oh, yeah, very typical of that era. Website was pretty basic. Yeah. After they did this original site and then moved into finally selling things online, what was the next step that they took to really distinguish themselves online and make sure that they had a more significant online presence? Well, after they had got back the Criterion.com domain name, they partnered with a company that designed a website called The Auteurs, which was kind of like Letterboxes now, but not as extensive. It was more of a social network for movie lovers, and they were able to combine their, I guess, their visions together to try to create something called the Criterion Collection Online Cinema Tech, mm. and that was in November 2008. And that was when they also created a new website. And that was designed by the same designers who had designed the auteurs website. That's really fascinating. I remember back when they launched the online Cinematheque and they would have a selection of films that you could stream for free each month. They had kind of limited programming there, but you could also rent digital titles. I didn't quite realize that it was the same web company, but there was a really great sense of continuity between the new website and the auteur's site. 
Yes. And that was what actually drew me over to the auteurs, because mm. at that time, I just wasn't connected with a lot of people online as far as moviegoers are concerned. That was my introduction to the internet as far as movie fandom goes. Oh, that's neat. That's really neat. Going back to the Cinematheque, they were renting certain titles, which they would rotate at certain times. And I think it was a $5 fee for a single time rental. But you could use that as credit towards actually purchasing the disc. The Cinematheque itself only lasted about 18 months. By May of 2010, they had pretty much given up on that. How did Criterion, after this first approach through the auteurs, how did they start to explore more options for streaming video? It was just baby steps, really. They would offer small bundles to services like Netflix and Hulu. And then I guess they got together and wanted to establish their own channel where they could present as many films, as far as the Janus titles are concerned, as many as they were able to. And so that was in 2011, whenever they made the deal with Hulu. Hulu had just created a service they called Hulu Plus. Before that, Hulu was an ad service and mainly showed television programs, and they wanted to get more into the streaming of movies. So they thought they could bring a lot of movie fans over to Hulu if they created this new service. And of course, Criterion was a good pull for persons who knew about Criterion. In February 2011, they moved most of their Janus films over to Hulu Plus. Of course, the Hulu subscribers had to pay the extra fee in order to get these ad-free movies from Criterion. It wasn't that much, maybe $5 a month more than a regular service. So it was a great deal. How long were they on Hulu? How long did that partnership last? About five and a half years from February 2011 until November 2016. And that's when they got together with Turner Classic Movies. And then that's when Filmstrut was born. What did you notice about the switch from Criterion's partnership with Hulu to their partnership with TCM and the way Filmstruck operated? It was a smooth transition, but as far as the actual films and the way they were presented, it was night and day. You really had to search pretty hard to find the films on Hulu. They didn't really have a separate channel where you can just switch over and say, I want to see everything that's on Criterion now. Yeah, And of course, you know, that all changed with Filmstruck because you had the two sides and it was just easy to navigate between the two if you subscribe to both services. It seemed, too, that with the move to Filmstruck, they really started to look at the possibilities and the potentials of how they could replicate their disc experience on oh, a yes. streaming platform. That's true. Hulu never gave you access to any of the supplemental material. Mm. I don't believe they ever did any commentary tracks. So, of course, all of that changed with Filmstruck. And then also with Filmstruck, Criterion was able to create original programming. Mm. And, yeah. and that, was, yeah. that was a big boon there. Yeah, there are so many incredible little mini-series that they have created, like the observations on film art or the adventures in movie-going, which... It's content that will never be released on disc, and it's really exciting to have it on their own streaming service. Oh, yes. Wonderful stuff. And thankfully, it was all ported over to the Criterion channel. So that was one thing we was concerned about. Was this original programming that Criterion did for Filmstruck, would it actually be carried over? And thankfully, it was. Yeah. So there's one last iteration to where we are currently with their website. And what was that change like? And how significant was the change between their old site and what we have currently? In May 2018, it was a big change. They pretty much 
got rid of all of the social media aspects mm-hmm. of their previous website. And that means all of the lists were removed, all of the commenting. So now there is more content as far as essays and different news items. You have the daily columns. And so it more than makes up for what was taken away from the list. Of course, now that we have Letterbox, that pretty much does everything we ever needed to do on the old Criterion website. Yeah, it does seem that with Letterboxd, both what the auteurs used to do and what Criterion used to do on their website, it feels like Letterboxd does that all so much better and more effectively. Exactly, yeah. When Warner Media killed Filmstruck, what do you think the transition has been like, and how do you think that move from the end of Filmstruck to the launch of the Criterion Channel? What has that process been like, and and what do you see as similarities and differences moving forward? Oh, I can tell you there's a lot of concern out there about what the new channel was going to be, because we all knew what the Criterion Channel was on Filmstruck, and it turns out that the new Criterion Channel is pretty much an amalgam of the two. It Mm. includes bundles from international films all the way to classic Hollywood so it fills that very small niche that Warner Media decided <laughs> that it didn't need to cater to anymore. Everything that you loved about Filmstruck is pretty much there on the new Criterion channel. Yeah. I was really surprised with how much limited content or temporary content they added each month. People were worried that we weren't going to be getting some of the same content that we were getting every month with Filmstruck, and yet we are getting more than I can even keep up with sometimes. Oh, yes, yes. 50 to 60, you know, I think next month 75 titles are coming. Yeah. So, yes, there's a lot out there, and I think any concerns that anyone had about what the new channel was going to present can just be laid aside because we've got more than enough, can we put it that way? <laughs> even someone like me who tries to be viewing complete It's been quite a chore and a great chore at that. I'm not saying that it's hard. No, of course not, because it's presenting some of the great films. I was surprised even this month to learn that a film that had never streamed before is going to be presented this month on the Criterion Channel. Yeah, that's incredibly exciting to get this really well-regarded, important contemporary film. And to have that be a first-run stream on the Criterion Channel is incredible. It is, yes. Anything else you want to add to the discussion of Criterion's online presence and streaming presence? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah, I appreciate you talking with me and getting this information out. I'm sure there's a few people out there like us who find this fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I love that you have really become one of this community's unofficial historians as you dig into the past of the Criterion Collection and help us contextualize where we are now. Appreciate you saying that, Josh. Michael, why don't you tell people where they can find you? I can be found on Letterboxd under Michael Hutchins. And I'm also on Criterion Now Facebook group and several other Criterion-related Facebook groups, including the Criterion Channel Club. Great. Well, thank you again for joining me, Michael. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, thank you, Josh. We'll be right back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Aaron West of the 25th Frame, Criterion Now, and Criterion Close-Up joins me to talk about November's new releases and expiring titles. Stay with us. Also available from the 25th Frame, Drinking While Talking, hosted by Jill Blake and Wade Sheeler. Classic film, classic music, classic culture, shaken and stewed. Every episode of Drinking While Talking, Jill Blake and Wade Sheeler discuss movies and music new and old, with some forays into pop culture from the past 
as well as wherever the spirit takes them as they get progressively more spirited. Whether they're delving into classic film, desert island pics, quizzes, games, or misguided monologues, the question will always remain, how far can they get until everything falls apart? As the editors of TheRetroset.com, the premier clearinghouse for all things classic, you can catch their deep dives into movies, music, and lifestyle. Sober. Their hope on drinking while talking is to take the pretension out of discussing the classics as they make their way from the early 20th century through modern day by way of film, culture, politics, through the prism of their unique and personal lens. And booze. Welcome back for more Criterion Channel Surfing. My guest today is Aaron West of the Criterion Now and Criterion Close-Up Podcasts. He's also one of the co-founders of the 25th Frame Network. Thanks for coming on the show today, Aaron. Glad to be here. You're off to a great start, so it's a pleasure. Thank you. Before we really dive into the new and expiring titles, why don't you talk a little bit about the 25th Frame, what the impetus was behind starting that, and then talk a little bit about the two podcasts that you run. Sure. It's a big story. <laughs> Not that I usually would plug a podcast in response to a question, but just so happened to record episode 100, and we go through a pretty lengthy history of the genesis of Criterion Now, Criterion Close-Up, and the 25th Frame. I started Criterion Now in 2017 with the intention of it being a kind of a weekly Criterion variety show. So we were just going to cover the recent movies that came out. We would pick short takes, pieces of flair. We would talk about the upcoming releases, our thoughts about what was happening with Criterion at that moment, hence the name now. That was where that came from. This was when we were with Criterion Cast. It evolved uh, once the newsstand ended, and we incorporated more news and more of that discussion, and that actually has turned out to be a pretty good fit for the show. And Criterion Close-Up was where Mark Herney and I first started our series of Criterion shows, and that was more of a deeper dive into films and directors. And then the 25th Frame is what we started this past year. We're fortunate to have you as a part of, with myself and Cole Rulane of the Magic Lantern podcast. It's not Criterion-specific, although we are certainly covering that topic pretty thoroughly, but it's just about art film, and we have casts like The Complete, where they talk about a director at a time, Just the Discs, which is about home media, Magic Lantern, Drinking While Talking, which is Jill and Wade, who are big-time film buffs, and also, of course, Alicia Malone's Magnificent Obsession, so a pretty good representation of different aspects of classic to foreign to art film, and more coming, too. While you started off really podcasting about the Criterion Collection, it seems like you've really tried to broaden that base of conversations with the 25th Frame to really encompass art and culture all over the world. We have Good Times, Great Movies, which is yeah. about cheesy 80s movies most of the time. Yeah. But then you get Movies Silently, which is really looking at the art of silent filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting to be a part of such a diverse stable of creators who are passionate about film. Yeah, and, and frankly, even though I have Criterion shows and I love the Criterion collection, I'm interested just in home media and art film. This fits to expand beyond just a label and to focus on some other topics that I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Why don't you share a little bit about your experiences with the channel? I know you're primarily a physical media person, but what have your experiences been with the channel so far? So I was hooked immediately with the Columbia Noir. That's probably mm. the first and last grouping that I watched from start to finish. Yes, I am a physical media connoisseur. 
I have accumulated quite a few discs, and sometimes those get watched, sometimes those don't, so I always have plenty of content. However, I do like watching stuff on the channel. I've watched less on the Criterion channel than I did Filmstruck, mm. and I like the Criterion channel, don't get me wrong, but I think I still miss Filmstruck, and I think that it was a little more robust. Even the platform, I think, was superior, although there are some improvements with Criterion channel that I think are better. Filmstruck made a lot of progress in its short lifespan. What are some of the things that you have found cumbersome about the channel and some of the things that maybe you're hoping they continue to improve? I always liked the Criterion Channel programming on Filmstruck. That's certainly continued, and I think they've actually expanded upon that with yeah. some of the collections they've licensed. Again, not a knock on Criterion because I love them, but not having TCM as a partner, I think we feel that. Yeah. And also, I think just the interface... I liked that there was regular new content on Filmstruck, and it was more easily accessible to figure out what was new and what was not. Whereas I've noticed that with the Criterion Channel, a lot of times with the little sliders, sometimes it's older content, and sometimes that featured yeah. content fades quickly. And also, they put the lineup all up at once. Yeah. It becomes overwhelming. Yeah, I was really surprised just how much content they dumped right away. While it's nice to be able to access it all, it is easy to forget that we have all of this content. It can get buried really quickly. Yes, I'm not complaining about a lot of content. Just make <laughs> myself clear there. The more content, the better. Obviously, the more content, the less I'll be able to watch. But I think that you do lose a little bit in the noise, and so it's a little overwhelming. Whereas, I guess with Filmstruck, the way they would put it up each week, it felt a little more yeah. current, a little more featured, and so I was a little more tempted to keep up with it. Yeah. And I wonder, too, whether some of this has to do with the fact that Criterion is building their channel on another company's existing platform using the Vimeo VHX Probably. service limits what they're able to do. I think it's one of those imperfect solutions, the compromises that they made in order to get the collection out there. Yeah, it probably has a lot to do with that. And again, not graping. I also happen to have some friends that were involved with the TCM side of things. So I'm a little, yeah. I guess, nostalgic for Filmstruck for them and yeah. for their input. Yeah, people over the last few weeks have been sharing their memories of Filmstruck since it's been about a year yeah. since they announced the cancellation of Filmstruck. There was something really special about that service. Yeah. I sent out a poll on the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group at the end of October, just asking what some of the reasons were that they subscribed to the Criterion Channel. Why did they dive into this? I'm curious to know, what was one of the main reasons for you to sign up for the Criterion Channel? Even though I probably won't watch as many as you, it's really not that expensive, I think, for the value you get. Yeah. And even if there might be some months I won't watch any, there might be some months I'll watch 10. I support them. I do want to see what's what's out there. And kind of like Hulu. I didn't watch Hulu all the time either when the channel was on there, but I liked having that in order to fill a gap or research for something. There are a whole bunch of content out there. Yeah, yeah. I had signed up for Hulu and moved over to Filmstruck and I'm back on the Criterion channel. And for me, a lot of the reason why I'm excited about having this online is there are hundreds of films that Criterion might never get mm -hmm. to releasing on disc. And to have access to all of the Kenoshita, all of these smaller films by really great directors, I find that to be just so worth that 10 bucks a month. It's Absolutely. such a minimal yeah. cost for having access to so much great film. Yeah, also Narusei yeah. and Oshima. There's yeah. a lot of great, I guess you'd count them as obscure Japanese directors that have quite a lot of content on the channel. Yeah. When I asked the poll, people in the Criterion Channel Facebook group 
The number one reason that they dived into the Criterion channel was for the obscure underseen films. The second place on that poll was being able to work through director filmographies. Oh, sure. And then supporting Criterion was the number three choice there. Last month when I had sent out a poll of what people were excited to catch before they leave, I was surprised by how many people were really excited for the physical releases. Films that, you know, you can buy, mm -hmm. but number four on the list of reasons people subscribe is so that they don't have to buy all the physical releases and they can still get access to all of that content. It is really exciting that Criterion releases most of the supplements and commentaries mm -hmm. and really makes their content available to their subscribers. Yeah, it feels like they kind of get it too, that this is what we were wanting all this time, digital access to all that. Yeah, yeah. So let's dive a little bit into the new releases for the month of November. We have MGM musicals from the Golden Age. There are 16 films there. There's a lot of content. I don't know how I'm going to keep up with that bundle. Then we have starring Judy Garland, which has seven titles from that previous bundle as well. We'll have Three Jacks, three films starring Jack Nicholson, Five Easy Pieces, The King of Marvin Gardens, and The Last Detail. And then we have a set of films that trade on the paranoia of the 70s. Caught on Tape has a face in the crowd, Clute, The Conversation, Blowout, Diva, Three Colors Red, Cachet, and The Lives of Others. We're getting seven short films by Susan Pitt. She was a director of animated shorts. Her film Asparagus played with David Lynch's Eraserhead all across the country. We're getting a really big chunk of films from Peter Greenaway, including The Draftsman's Contract, A Zed and Two Knots, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, Prospero's Books, and The Pillow Book. They're starting a new feature this month called Queer Sighted, and this version of Queer Sighted is looking at the ache of desire, looking at films that touch on LGBTQ themes, but maybe aren't as explicit about them. Those films are Yentl, Mulholland Drive, I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, Raging Sun, Raging Sky, Stranger by the Lake, and then it also includes films that are currently on the channel, like Persona, Le Rendezvous d'Anna, Desert Hearts, and Happy Together. The next bit that we're getting is directed by Alice Rohrwacher. She's the director of Happy as Lazaro, which was mm -hmm. a big film last year, and so we're getting two of her earlier works, Corpo Celeste and The Wonders. Getting a selection of food films, including Delicatessen, Big Night, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, plus a lot of other films that you would expect that are currently on the channel, like Tampopo and Babette's Feast, Secret of the Grain. The Criterion editions that they're going to be releasing this month are They Live by Night, Twelve Angry Men, The 400 Blows, The Coker Trilogy, and The Inland Sea. We're getting a new Adventures in Movie going with director Karen Kusama, and she's going to be talking about Near Dark, plus films like Pathra Panchali, High and Low, Jean Dielman, Fanny and Alexander, and Come and See. We're getting a Saturday matinee of Kess, along with some of the other films that are currently on the channel. We're getting a couple of shorts that aren't already there, The Death of the Sound Man and Hacked Circuit. And then they're releasing a bunch of individual titles, either as standalone releases or as double features. Getting The Arbor, The Harder They Come, which was an out-of-print Criterion DVD. Getting No Place Like Home, An Elephant Sitting Still, Reprise, Oslo, August 31st, and Just Another Girl on the IRT. Aaron, what are some of the things that you really think that people should check out while it's on the channel? 
we had talked about covering what we call the masters, and so that's kind of how yeah. I chose the films that I selected. Mm. Uh, there were a lot to choose from, a lot of masters in this. Yeah. So we have Michael Haneke, Cachet, which I think is one of his yeah. stronger efforts. Depending on the day of week, I might say that's his favorite film. I still haven't seen it since the time in which it came out. I've been hoping that it would make an appearance on disc. Yeah. I still think it could, maybe someday. That's one that really pays off with multiple viewings. A good 10, 15 years or whatever it's been might even make it better. Yeah. And then there's another master, Francis Ford Coppola. The Conversation, which is in that early 70s paranoia era, and it really does some special things with sound. In fact, it's almost a clinic as far as sound design, I'd say. Very strong film. Then there's Hal Ashby, who I'm a big fan of. In fact, we have a close-up episode on Hal Ashby that's coming out soonish. A little behind with editing that one, but the last detail. Yeah. I think that's one of his strongest efforts. Maybe, again, tough to choose from because I like a lot of his films. A lot of them are quite different, but this is a very powerful film and one of the better performances from Jack Nicholson. Very, very powerful performance among, of course, many in his career. And then finally, I would say, of all these, this is the person I would consider the master of the group, mm. and that's Abbas Kiostami, and we get the Coco Trilogy, speaking of recent Criterion disc releases. So yeah. if anybody's on the fence, first off, I highly recommend the actual box set. The packaging is beautiful, and you know, if you want something that looks good on your shelf, then that's a good choice, probably one of the best choices of the year. However, if you just want to see some beautiful films and really see some personal impact and kind of inject yourself into the narrative and your own feelings about an event, the first movie is a straight narrative. The second movie follows an event that happened after filming the first movie. And then the third movie is the aftermath of that. And if you know Kiristami, a lot of his work is kind of playing with reality and fiction. He's done some documentaries and he's done some faux documentaries. Of course, Close Up, I think, is the most notable. And there are two in the Coco Trilogy that are kind of in that vein. And I highly recommend that. Mm. And it really, all together, it's just a very special trilogy that conveys his feelings towards the people he worked with and the region in which he worked. Yeah, those are must-watches. Yeah. The conversation was one that I dug into when I was first getting into classic and art house films, and it blew me away. I think it may be one of my favorite films from Francis Ford Coppola. I think it is just so perfectly constructed. Cachet is great. I watched The Last Detail for the first time maybe about a year ago, and it is really riveting. So yeah, I Mm -hmm. think these are all really great selections. Yeah, and from a guy like Coppola, I'd say the conversation is almost a little underrated. Yeah. That one, I think, it seems to be kind of forgotten compared to Godfather and Apocalypse Now, of course. Definitely a must-see. I would actually say that I prefer the conversation over his larger, more notable works. Yeah. Well, I would recommend people check out The Arbor. It is a film from Cleo Bernard. It is creative nonfiction. The film takes the life of a working-class British playwright and uses actual interviews with the people in her life and then has actors recreating scenes from her life and lip-syncing to the recorded interviews. The effect is absolutely striking. It is a really fascinating look at the creative process at this really broken woman who created some incredible art, but left a trail of devastation in her wake. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend The Harder They Come. It's an out-of-print Criterion DVD. It is a really fun reggae-infused film from Jamaica, and it's really angry, really political. It's a really compelling film. 
the last detail is great, but all of the films in that three jack section, if you don't have five easy pieces, if you don't have the King of Marvin Gardens, you're really going to mm-hmm. get a chance to see Jack Nicholson at his best. And that entire caught on tape set, I really liked The Lives of Others, which mm, I yeah. saw years ago. It was a really compelling thriller. I really love Three Colors Red. I mean, you're getting so many really fascinating films. You know, you're going to get stuff like The Conversation, but you're also going to get De Palma's Blowout. It's going to be a really fun journey to kind of look at the way surveillance has been put on film. There's a lot of great ones. The Lives of Others, I mean, we didn't mention some of the food movies. I would say actually The Less Blank is a favorite of mine and Secrets of the Grain. I think there's also Persona, 400 Blows. I mean, (laughs) some good movies. We could keep going, (laughs) right? there's there's a lot. (laughs) I will say that The Harder They Come might have been on my list if I wasn't trying to restrict it to the Masters. But what's interesting about that is it just had a Shout Factory release Mm. within the last couple months, and I had not purchased that. We could put that in the wanting to see category. I probably will see it. Speaking of wanting to see, Aaron, what are the films that you're going to really try to catch on the channel before they leave that are part of this bunch of new releases for the month? An Elephant Sitting Still is one I've heard a lot about, and that's one I'm probably going to catch before it expires. But the films that I've wanted to see for a while and haven't had access to, the Peter Greenaway films. So I've seen The Cook, The Thief, The Wife, and Her Lover, and I think it's really just a farcical food comedy. (laughs) I don't know what you'd call it. (laughs) With a little bit of political satire that actually still holds up in some respects, in a lot of respects. I know that he was kind of a provocative filmmaker, and I understand his other UK films, which didn't really, as far as I know, didn't really hit overseas here, were pretty edgy. You mentioned a Z and Two Knots, and there are some others. I do want to see those. I hear good things, and I don't want to buy all these BFI versions. Yeah. And I also say that Oslo, August 31st, is that Joachim Trier? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've seen a couple of his, and I didn't dislike them. I thought they were pretty good, but within those films, you could see his talent as a filmmaker, even if those might not have been the perfect examples. But from what I understand, Oslo is really a strong film, and it's been on my watch list for a while. Yeah. I saw Oslo a few years ago, and it's really compelling. I'm glad we're getting another film from him. I always like it when they're able to put a director's work in some sort of context, Mm -hmm. so I think that'll be neat. Elephant Sitting Still is one that I missed when it played for the three days that it played here in Seattle. And you know me, I love my long films, so I'm excited to get (laughs) four and a half hours. I totally and thoroughly agree with you on that one. It's exciting, too, that Criterion is getting an exclusive streaming rights for a few months before it is even released on disc. I think that's quite a get for them, yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to catch more of the Susan Pitt stuff. Her animation is really fascinating. Alicia Rohrwacher's Happy as Lazaro was one of my favorite films last year, and so I am thrilled to get to see her earlier work on the channel. I really love her mix of neorealism with magical realism. Mm -hmm. It's exciting to have her films there. I'm really excited for the Karen Kusama Adventures in Movie Going. I love the Adventures in Movie Going series. I think it's really fascinating to hear these creative people, whether they're authors, actors, or directors, talking a little bit about the films that inspire them. And I'm always excited when Criterion brings out a new set of programming. So I think the Queer Sided is going to be a really fascinating look at the history of LGBTQ representation in cinema. Agreed, yeah. The poll in the Criterion Channel Club group, the things that they're most excited for, they're really looking forward to the Peter Greenaway films. I was surprised that the Peter Greenaway films beat out the Hollywood musicals. Then Elephant Sitting Still was in third place. 
followed by Caught on Tape, and then those Criterion editions. And I do think that the Greenaway films, those are ones that I've been dying to check out like you. I've only seen The Cook. I can't wait to dig into more of his stuff. So along with all of the new releases that we get, we also get films that are going to be leaving the channel at the end of the month, and there are a lot that we're losing. It doesn't feel like quite as many as we had last month, but it's still significant. We're going to be losing two of the Carlos Regatas films, Battle in Heaven and Silent Light. We're going to be losing the rest of the Alec Guinness films, Captain's Paradise, Lavender Hill Mob, Man in the White Suit, and Kind Hearts and Coronets. We're going to be losing the Apichapong Wereserakun films, Cemetery of Splendor, Syndromes in a Century, Uncle Boonmi Who Can Recall His Past Lives, and Tropical Malady. The Penelope Spiris films, the Decline of Western Civilization trilogy in suburbia, are also leaving. We're going to be losing the two feature films that were directed by Anna Biller, Love Witch and Viva. Looks like the shorts may still be on the channel, but we'll know for sure at the end of the month if they leave along with everything else. We're losing a handful of the directed by John Schlesinger films. So we're losing Falcon and the Snowman, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Midnight Cowboy, and Marathon Man. A few of the others are still going to be on the channel. And a big surprise, five of the musicals that are premiering from the MGM Musicals Bundle are only available for this month. So these are ones you really want to jump on if you're interested in the musical set. We're going to be losing The Harvey Girls, Meet Me in St. Louis, An American in Paris, The Bandwagon, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. There will still be 11 films left to watch on that musical set, but those five are going to be going. We're going to be losing a couple of the Laurence Olivier films, Wuthering Heights, Marathon Man, and Oh, What a Lovely War. And then a bunch of individual titles, whether they were Criterion Editions or Double Features or Saturday Matinees. We're going to be losing The Maids, Marwin Call, The Plague Dogs, Tales of Beatrix Potter, The Wicker Man, Yolene, The Hours and the Times, The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, Clute, Stalag 17, and A Dry White Season. So that's a lot that's leaving, Aaron. What are the films that people have to see before they leave the channel this month? So I have four, and one I just added <laughs> when I heard your, your rundown, <laughs> so thank you. The first one is Anna Biller, The Love Witch. It's really yeah. a special movie, and I think Anna Biller has a really unique vision. This movie in particular is sort of a bit of a Douglas Sirkian melodrama that also yeah. hits on 50s camp and also subverts the image of women yeah. as sex symbols or love interests and kind of plays with that in a really interesting way and I think a really provocative way. It sort of turns that on its head. It's enjoyable, it's a little odd, but it's really just engaging and thought-provoking. Can't wait to see what else she comes out with going forward. Yeah. There's also The Wicker Man, which we've been talking about a lot about full core this year, especially with Midsummer, and that I think borrows a lot from The Wicker yeah. Man. Maybe steals a little bit from, from The Wicker Man. <laughs> you can't really replace the original. And The Wicker Man really is a special and extremely bonkers movie. Yeah. It's certainly a sight to be seen. If you haven't seen it, it is a must-see, I think, for any cinephile. Even if you don't even like horror, it's just something special. I also put The Decline of Western Civilization, the entire trilogy, on there. Mm. I don't care if you don't like the music. A lot of people won't. In fact, I'm going to say that especially the middle one is not good music. <laughs> but each one captures a chapter in time. And I think this is actually a statement about an era and some of the best music documentary work of the time. And I think actually the middle one, the one about hair metal, 
kind of captures the hedonism and the fact that they don't take it seriously. It's also a little sad in a way yeah. and funny at times as well, and sometimes in a not pleasant way, almost like unintentional comedy. Really engaging watches. And the last one I just added was Kind Hearts and Coronets. That's just a special yeah. classic art comedy. Again, very dark comedy. It's one of those Studio Canal titles. It's probably not going to come back to Criterion, and it's a good one to watch streaming. Yeah, yeah. Kind Hearts and Coronets is such a special film. It was my real introduction to Alec Guinness outside of the Star Wars films and really seeing his range as a performer and how delightful he is on screen. So mm -hmm. yeah, I wholeheartedly agree on that. I just watched The Wicker Man a few nights ago, and I think the thing that surprised me the most about it was that no one tells you that it's also a musical in addition it to is. a horror film. <laughs> so is Midsummer in a way. Yeah, yeah, and it's delightful. It's really, really delightful. Mm -hmm. The ones that I would recommend, I'll echo what you said about The Love Witch and really recommend that entire Anna Biller set. I love that we get her short films as well. I saw Love Witch when it first came out. It was at the Seattle Film Festival and really appreciated it, but knew there were some things that I just wasn't quite getting. Mm. And watching her short films and watching Viva leading into the Love Witch, I really understood more fully what she's trying to do, the way she is subverting male expectations. Yeah, the male gaze, women. I think, actually. Yeah. She's reframing the male gaze. She's also creating films that feel like 1950s Technicolor mm -hmm. dreams that really feel like they exist in dialogue with those classic Hollywood films. And the effect is really stunning. While her films are still on the Criterion channel, I would highly recommend people check those out. A Pitch Upon Where Setakun is such a unique filmmaker as well, and the chance to get to see most of his films on the Criterion channel is one that really you should take the time to let yourself soak in his really unique rhythms and his style. The films are almost meditative at times. If you're only going to see one, I would either recommend Cemetery of Splendor or Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. I think they're both really masterful examples of that style, the ways in which it feels like you enter into a dream state when you watch his films. Highly recommend those. And another one on that Alec Guinness bundle is The Lavender Hill Mob. Mm -hmm. It's so charming and delightful. I watched through the entire bundle a few months ago when a few of the earlier films were expiring, and I have to say there isn't one film in that set that is bad. Some are better than others, but they are all really charming and really delightful, and so I would highly recommend The Lavender Hill Mob as well. I will agree with you that there's none that are bad, but I'm not a fan of the man in the white suit. I won't say it's bad, uh, but I think yeah, compared to yeah. the other two, it pales, but that's my opinion. And I do think that Kind Hearts and Coronets and Lavender Hill Mob are kind of masterpieces there. Yeah, yeah. So it's I, a yeah. high bar. <laughs> it is, it is. But I agree. I, I totally can see where you're coming from there. What are some of the films that are on the channel that you haven't had a chance to catch yet that are leaving that you really want to watch before they go? You just mentioned Anna Biller, and well, we both did. I haven't seen Viva, so while I think I have an idea of what she was going for with The Love Witch, I haven't dived too far into her aesthetic. Yeah. I believe that's one where she stars in as well, so I yeah. think I'd be interested to see how she portrays her female protagonist and just literally see what she's going for as an actress. The Plague Dogs, that's the Martin Rosen animated film. Yeah. So I love Watership Down. I've talked about it in other venues. I wrote a really long blog about it. I think it's a special movie. The Plague Dogs is one I've wanted to see. And in fact, it's been on my queue and I've pressed the play button, but I know it's harsh. Yeah. And it's not like I'm a squeamish person, but I just haven't been at the place in which I can really focus on that. Hopefully I will not miss it. I guess if I do, I'll just rent it someday. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then I probably won't get to these, but I really appreciate the aesthetic of Carlos Regatas. And mm-hmm. those two films especially, well, they're the two major ones I haven't seen, and I've heard really strong things. Again, I probably won't get to them, so it's one of those dying to catch. If that were the case, I would probably be dead in a month. But <laughs> if I get a chance, I will catch those. And someday I'll watch them anyway. And we don't know yet if these are going to come back, how these are going to rotate, because I think yeah. some of the Filmstruck library did come back, if I recall. Yeah, and it does seem that some of these films do make a small rotation. We've lost Babyface once already, and it came back, and we've lost it again. So I do think that we are going to see some of these films turn back over again. Plague Dogs, I watched that this week as well, as I have made it through the October expiring titles and tried to get a head start on November. I will just say, Aaron, that I was a mess of tears by the end of it. Oh, great. Yeah, that's a great self It's worth watching. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is so moving. I'm sad that Martin Rosen didn't do more animation, mm-hmm. but the fact that he did these two animated masterpieces, Watership Down and The Plague Dogs, I think that his career is outstanding just for those two films. Well, okay. That's probably the one I'll prioritize. Well, that and be Yeah. I'm really excited to catch Marwin Call. It's one that I've wanted to see for a long time. It's a documentary that's been on my radar, but I just haven't pulled the trigger on watching it yet. It's one that my wife is interested in watching, so I know we're going to be catching that together. The Schlesinger films, I am really curious about his later output. I know that his earlier 60s stuff is probably more well-regarded, but I'm always curious to see the evolution of a filmmaker, so I'm excited for that. And I am really excited to catch The Decline of Western Civilization Trilogy. Those are films, again, that have been on my radar, but I haven't seen them. And so getting the chance to see them and see a lot of the special features as well. It has Mm -hmm. the commentary track. It has a lot of interviews with her. Getting the chance to see that on the channel, I think, is going to be really special. I just want to say one thing about Marwin Call. I also want to see it, and I haven't, and my wife has seen it and recommends it. Mm -hmm. It's made the rounds at other streaming services, and I've even noticed it being 99-cent rentals at Amazon. So I think that if you do miss out on that one, there will be other opportunities. I believe it's even on Canopy, if you have Mm. that through your library. But I've heard great things. Yeah. The poll in our Facebook group for what films people were most excited to catch before they leave, a Pitchapong Where Sedekun's films were number one on the list, which was kind of surprising, but I'm glad that people are really excited to see his films. The musicals that are only on the channel for a month are also pretty high up there, along with Anna Biller, which I am very happy that people are going to be checking out her films, and Clute, which is another one that has been on the channel before it left and is coming back for this Caught on Tape segment, so people are excited to catch those. Those are the Criterion Channel's new and upcoming titles for the month of November. Aaron and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment as we dive into the Criterion Channel's back catalog and talk about the masters. But first, I'm going to speak with our friend Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast to talk about some tips and tricks for using the channel. So stay with us. Also available from the 25th frame, Daisuke Beppu. In this series of YouTube videos, Daisuke Beppu shares his thoughts on film, and the Criterion Collection. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here once again with our frequent contributor, Matt Gasteyer of The Complete Podcast. The Complete Podcast is now in its third season. Matt and his co-host, Travis Trudell, are currently exploring the complete filmography of Krzysztof Kozlowski. Matt's also created a set of essential letterbox lists for anyone just beginning their journey into the Criterion Collection. They're called How Do I Criterion? Matt, thanks for joining me again today. Thanks for having me back. Thank you again for your tips and tricks. 
the way to reorder your queue by quickly removing and re-adding it to your queue. I use it every day now. That has been an absolute lifesaver so that I'm not hunting and searching for the films that are coming up. That was one of the most invaluable pieces of advice that I have received on the show. So thank you for that. Oh, great. That's great to hear. I was wanting to talk today about the different devices and the different ways that we can access the Criterion channel and some of the different quirks between the way that we navigate, how they operate, and what the best uses are for each of these different devices. What do you currently use to do your streaming? So I have a Apple TV that I use on my main living room TV. I also have a iPad and an iPhone that I access the app on and I go on the website on my desktop computer. And then finally, I also have a fire stick that I use on the TV in my office. So I'm able to get a broad range of the options for the channel. That's great. Yeah, I use the Apple TV and then I have it across my mobile devices as well. So how have you accessed it through your desktop computer, through different browsers? Have you noticed anything different when you use it on your computer than when you use it on your streaming devices? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's incredibly different. You know, I'm not a browser. I'm not somebody that's going to just go onto the main page and look at whatever bundles they have and click play Mm. on something that looks interesting to me. I'm going to do plenty of research beforehand and make sure that I have the things that I want to watch at the top of my list. In fact, on my desktop browser, I have my list as the bookmark rather than the main page, which I just find useful to be able to get right to. I do all of my browsing and looking, adding things to my list from the desktop. I find it to be significantly easier than doing anything searching or any of that kind of thing on any of the apps, but certainly not on the TV apps, as I find the process of typing in anything on one of those uh, to be pretty frustrating. Have you done much viewing on your desktop browsers or have you saved that for your streaming devices? I view shorts generally on my desktop if I have a minute and I'm doing something that, you know, is low engagement. If I want to take a screen grab of something, I'll do it that way. But I don't watch a full movie on my desktop. Yeah, I think it's interesting that because the channel is essentially built on the technology of another company, that each device that we use it on, the experience is just slightly unique. And so in some ways, it really is a benefit to have the ability to access the channel across these different devices so that you can really have the optimal experience with the Criterion channel. Yeah, I agree. Tell me a little bit about the differences between your experience using the Criterion channel on your Apple TV and the Fire Stick. And have you had anything that doesn't quite work the same between those two devices? Well, I have found, and it seems like it varies from person to person, I have found notably more bugs on the Fire Stick than I have on the Mm -hmm. Apple TV. Occasionally, I will need to reboot my Apple TV. But sometimes the Fire Stick will go a full day where I'm trying to hit play on something and it just won't load. I Mm. also find it odd on the Fire Stick. 
if you pause and restart playing something, you have to exit out of the pop-up overlay that shows you the counting time of a film. It's just like a weird quirk. In general, I fear updates on the Fire Stick more than I fear them on the <laughs> Apple TV, just because I've noticed, I think twice since the service started, I've had to delete the app and then reinstall it because mm -hmm. it was not working at all. It can be occasionally frustrating, but it's still nice to have the second device in a different room for me. So I make it work. Have you had any weird glitches that you've noticed with the Apple TV, or has that been a fairly smooth experience for you? I've noticed it takes a really long time for images to load on the pages. Again, mm. that may just be my device. And then the syncing in terms of moving from one device to another, or even if you start watching something and then exit out of it, will often not change the watch now to a resume label on the play function. And so I'll have to fast forward back and forth to figure out where I was. So I've just made it a habit of remembering where I am in a movie anytime I exit out of it on any of my devices, mm. just to make sure that I don't get messed up by the lack of syncing. Yeah. And I've had a couple of times where I finished watching something and it stays in my yes. uh, resume watching queue for a bit. I had watched the Ida Lupino trailer and it just stayed frozen about halfway through it. It was up there for maybe two weeks and then I tried to rewatch <laughs> it again just to clear it out because, you yeah. know, you want to clear those things out of your queue. Eventually it disappeared and it's been working more smoothly since then. Most but of I my keep watching is extras that I watched halfway through and decided <laughs> I didn't need to finish them. You can clear the keep watching if you want. On most devices, I think there's a setting that you can go to. Another setting that I discovered that I'm so grateful to have discovered was on the iOS app. When you click through onto the page for a movie, it starts playing automatically, which I find really frustrating because oftentimes yeah. I'm just trying to look at the summary or to see how long a movie is or something like that. And you can turn that off in the settings. You spoke a little bit about using your mobile device to check things. Is there any other reason that you use your iPhone on the channel? So I have occasionally downloaded extras to play offline. That function was pretty unworkable for most of the lifespan of the service, unfortunately. It is a really useful concept, but it just wasn't working for me. I recently took a business trip and was excited to catch up on some films on the airplane, completely to no avail, oh, <laughs> unfortunately. No. But now it is working. I just checked it this morning, actually. It is good for, you know, if you're in the car and you want to listen to something rather than watch it. I haven't done it yet with a commentary, but I do plan to grab a couple of those as well. So I think that's really what I would use my iPhone for. Don't worry, mm. uh, David Lynch, I'm not watching a full movie on there. I do think it is useful for that reason. And then it's also just useful because I don't go on the website on my phone. So if I want to check to see if something's up there, I can use it on my phone. But I use it mostly for reference or for audio. Yeah. If I'm not near my desktop, I can check quickly to see if a film is right. still up or if they've added something else to it. Do you have a tablet that you use it with? Yeah, I have an iPad. 
if I'm in bed, I'll watch something on the iPad. But again, I'm not using it as much for watching as I am for kind of looking around or adding things to my list. It's a little bit easier on the iPad than it is on the phone. If I'm going to watch a movie on the channel, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to take it to the TV. Yeah. We have a projector in our tiny apartment, and it has gone out a couple of times in the last few months, and we've had to have it repaired. And the iPad has been the lifesaver for me, uh, <laughs> being able to watch films. It's not as nice as, right. as having you know, the full-size screen, but it is still really useful to be able to have access to these things. I have a tier to the film's It's kind of like a subconscious tier of what is big screen TV worthy, office while I'm doing menial task worthy, or on the iPad. A lot of that Columbia Noir bundle or the Stanwyck pre-code stuff, those movies are only an hour, so I'm more likely to be okay with watching them on, on a smaller screen in bed. The more options you have, the better off you are, I think, in terms of movie watching habits. Yeah. And I've also used the iPad for when I have to travel. Yeah. We have a limited sampling of the devices. What are some of the things that you've heard or the frustrations or the wishes maybe of people who are trying to use the channel on other devices? Well, I think unquestionably the biggest problem is their DRM, the inability to attach a laptop to a TV in many cases. Even older Fire Stick editions the channel does not work on them because of the DRM that the underlying software of the channel uses. I think that's the top biggest problem. There have also been a variety of issues that people have had across the devices. And I think people often tend to rate an app poorly, not because it's not functioning, but because it's not functioning in the way that they want it to be functioning. People will give one-star reviews because there's a limit to how many movies you can put in your list. It does seem like the Roku and the Apple TV apps are a little bit more stable than the Fire Stick. If I had to recommend one to people who don't have a device who might be hooking up their computer or streaming it on their desktop, it seems like the Roku is the way to go just because you have a lot of flexibility. But I'm happy with my Apple TV app at this point, and I know that they will work out the kinks like syncing and loading images as the channel progresses. Yeah, and I think that's a good recommendation for people who are mainly accessing the channel through a computer. I know a lot of people are hoping that an app will eventually be developed for the PlayStation or for the Xbox, but the chances of that, it seems, are pretty low. And I do think that it's really worth it to invest the relatively small expense in a Roku. You can get those so cheap now. I quite frankly have no sympathy for people who complain about the lack of a PlayStation or Xbox app. This is a small company that doesn't have a lot of time to devote to a very niche audience of people who own a PlayStation and no other device for watching things on their TV. Plunk down the $30 to get a Roku stick and you'll be perfectly happy. From what I have heard from people who do app development for other companies, both PlayStation and Xbox, the process for trying to get your app on their services is really difficult. And a company like Criterion just doesn't have the bandwidth. They don't have a team of developers working on this for them. 
So yeah, spend your $30, get the Roku, and you'll be incredibly happy. Agreed. Before we wrap up, why don't you share your contact information, a little bit about where you are with the Complete Podcast, and where people can find you. Sure. I'm Matthew E.G. on Letterboxd. That's where I spend most of my social media time. The show is nearing the end of Decalogue. We will be recording the episode on the final two episodes of Decalogue next weekend. So look for that in November and hopefully a wrap-up episode by the end of the month. You can find that show on the Complete Pod at Twitter and at the 25th frame. Thanks again for joining me, Matt. This has been really great. We'll be back with more Criterion Channel Surfing as Aaron West and I talk about the films of master filmmakers that are only available on the Criterion Collection's permanent digital library. Stay with us. Also available from the 25th frame, Magnificent Obsession, hosted by Alicia Malone, a new podcast from Alicia Malone featuring interviews with people who turn their obsession with movies into a career. Welcome back to Criterion Channel Surfing. I'm here with Aaron West, and we're getting ready to dig into the back catalog of Criterion's permanent streaming-only digital library. These are films that are often overlooked or forgotten about because the channel releases so much content each month. So here on the podcast, we like to try to pay special attention to those titles and give you a few films to check out that you may have missed. Even though the Criterion Collection released a wealth of titles from some of the masters of cinema on Blu-ray and DVD, there are still a handful of films from the greats that haven't made their way onto the physical media and are only really available on the Criterion channel. So we're going to dive into those. You can follow along at home in the show notes. We've got a link to Michael Hutchins' list on Letterboxd of all of the films that are streaming only on the Criterion channel. So, Aaron, tell me a little bit about your first movie. What was your first choice here? Sure. A little background. If people know me, of course, I love all types of films, all different cultures and countries. But if there's one film era that's, I guess, my cinephile brand, it's French film. Mm -hmm. Both of my films are French. So I guess you could say I'm a Francophile cinephile. (laughs) So I chose a 30s film and then a later film from Two Masters. I chose, I believe it's 1935, Tony by Jean Renoir which is a special film in a lot of ways. I would not put it up with Renoir's best, but of course, like we were talking about with Guinness, that's a very high bar. Some of his best films I consider the best films ever made. This one, though, even though he kind of stuck to his poetic realism template, he did get a little experimental, especially around the middle of the decade. And Tony is notable, I think, for arguably being the first neorealist film. And Mm. there is sort of a through line between French poetic realism and, of course, then this big war happened over to Italian neorealism. It had a AD by the name of Lucino Visconti. You may have heard of him. And he kind of yeah. took that mantle and made some neorealist films of his own. Also made some sweeping epics as well. Yeah. There are some similarities with Renoir's other films. You know, there's a working class protagonist trying to find his roots in a coastal town. And uh, of course, there's a girl. There's always a girl. Yeah. Again, it is neorealist. I believe it was all amateur actors, if not mostly amateur actors, which, of course, as you know, with Jean Gabin, Michel Simon, and some of the others that he used, you know, he liked to use professional actors. So this was kind of an experiment for him. Mm. Again, it's not his best film, but it's really, really strong, and it's not out anywhere, really. 
I believe there's a Region B DVD that might be in print somewhere, but it is on the Criterion channel. My suspicion is I think it'll probably come out someday on the collection, yeah. just because they're going to eventually get to all the Renoirs. Maybe there'll be a better print someday, but yeah, I, I certainly recommend Tony. That's one that has been right there at the top of my queue for a while, and Renoir is a master. It sounds really fascinating, and I had no idea that Visconti had been his AD on that, and to see that through line from what Renoir was doing here to Italian realism, I think will be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. That's why I'd love it on Criterion, because I would love to see the story behind that and learn more. Yeah. So. yeah. I believe it's being restored, but it's one of those ones that the restoration seems to be taking a while. Mm. My first film is one from Akira Kurosawa. It is Dersu Uzala. It was released in 1975. It's a film that is not released on Criterion Media. I believe it was released on Kino DVD a long time ago, and it was originally released on Criterion Laserdisc as well. For now, it is only available on the Criterion channel. There's an interesting backstory behind it. Kurosawa had attempted suicide after the failure of Doreskadin, and Mifune and some of his other friends helped raise the money for Kurosawa to be able to make this film. Kurosawa had been wanting to make this film since the mid-30s, and this was a passion project for him. It's based on a memoir by Vladimir Arsenyev, it's a really heartbreaking and beautiful film. It's the story of a friendship between a Russian topographer and a nomadic Goldie Hunter. They meet while the topographer is surveying the taiga. Dersu is this force of nature. He reminds me of some of the other Kurosawa heroes. He's haunted, though, by tragedy and loss. And the friendship between these two men is really beautiful, really breathtaking. Shots are reminiscent of the way Kurosawa shoots some of his more supernatural or mystical elements in films like Ron, Throne of Blood. There are these achingly beautiful moments, these haunting scenes of individuals who dissolve or who are swallowed by this vast wilderness landscape. I was kind of surprised to see how much the film plays with the individual versus society as Dursu has a hard time integrating into town life by the end of the film. So it's an intriguing film about the way the individual can get broken down and lose themselves in society. It's desperately in need of restoration. The print that they have available is a little rough at times, but I would highly recommend people check this out if you're looking to catch other corners of Kurosawa's filmography. It's a really beautiful film. I've actually been waiting for that restoration. Yeah. It has some elements problems, and I think that's probably why we've been waiting so long. Yeah. But yeah, no, I haven't seen it yet, and I'm really looking forward to it, especially now. It's really great. Aaron, what was your second film to talk about today? My second film is a later French director, really from the post-poetic realism, and actually kind of, I guess he coexisted with the French New Wave, but mm. was sort of separate as well, and that's Jean-Pierre Melville, who I think really is a master. He loved American films. He loved John Ford and Hitchcock. He wore a cowboy hat. That says a lot about him. <laughs> He's an interesting auteur because he lived through Vichy France. He was part of the Resistance. So this is probably his most personal film in terms of the resistance, although he has covered the topic in a couple other films. But he also had a number of gangster films and some really notable gangster films. They're all very good, starting with Bob Le Flambeur and Le Cirque Le Rouge. There's a whole bunch. This kind of incorporates both of those. 
you have that personal mm-hmm. element of the resistance, and then you also have some gangster scenes. Some of the same look and feel that you'll see in other films of his. So it's quite the blend. And also speaking of masters, you have some great performances. You have Lino Ventura, who really fits his style of filmmaking. You know, he kind of has that mm-hmm. underspoken, stoic vibe about him. Yeah, it just works for this character. Simone yeah. Signore. This is a later film for her, I guess. She plays Mathilde, a difficult character. And of course, living in the resistance, you know, they're trying to free France. Obviously, they want to stay alive, but that's not their foremost objective. Yeah. I'm trying not to spoil. Not that you can really <laughs> spoil this film. It's one of the best portrayals of resistance France, I'd say. It's not a documentary, but I'd say it's probably the closest to, since it's being portrayed by somebody who lived many of these scenes. And there's probably some fantasy elements. There's a couple chases. There's one scene where he paratroops into France from England. So yeah, Army of Shadows. It was on Criterion Disc and went out of print. I don't know how long it's going to be on the channel, but if you can see it and you don't want to shell out for the out-of-print disc, I would recommend seeing it on the channel while it's here. Yeah. It's quite a film. This was the film that really helped me click into Melville's pacing and style and rhythms and helped me appreciate some of the gangster films that I didn't quite click with when I first saw them. It gave me a real entryway into Melville, so I think this is an outstanding choice to recommend for people. Thank you. My second film is an early Hitchcock film, The Master of Suspense. It is Sabotage. It was released in 1936 and was part of his British period. It's very loosely based on Joseph Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent. Not to be confused with Hitchcock's other film released that year, which was called The Secret Agent, which was based on stories by another author. It was released just after 39 Steps. It was released the year before Young and Innocent and Lady Vanishes. So he's on this really great string of really taut thrillers. This may be, I think, Hitchcock's bleakest and darkest film. It's an interwar film. It's clearly addressing all of those tensions that were in Europe at the time. The story follows a young woman who is married to a cinema owner who we learn very early on within the first three shots that he is a saboteur and he is wreaking havoc on London and she doesn't know this. There is a police inspector who is observing them from afar. Like a lot of my favorite Hitchcock films, it's a reversal of the wrong man narrative that he loved to play with so much. You know, in North by Northwest, Cary Grant is mistaken as the wrong man, and then he's pursued in Young and Innocent, which came out later. You have another young man who is the wrong man. Everybody thinks he's murdered someone, so he's pursued by the authorities. In this one, we know from the very beginning who the villain of the piece is, and it's the innocents that are in his orbit that don't know that and have to learn about it. It's a quintessential spy thriller. It has all of the things you expect, clandestine meetings, mysterious packages, shadowy motives. As I said before, it is one of the darkest Hitchcock films and has a scene of shocking violence. It's among the most effective in his entire filmography. It's unbearably sad. The ending is so nuanced and it places characters in unbearable moral complications. You see Hitchcock really in complete command of his rhythms and pacing, his tone and style. His techniques are simple, but they're so effective, and we forget about the way that Hitchcock is using the camera to manipulate us. 
if this is one of those earlier films that you have not seen yet, I cannot recommend this one highly enough. It is one of the great thrillers out there. Agree. Is this one of those that's in the public domain? I could be wrong. There are a number of those 30s yeah. Hitchcocks. But if I'm not mistaken, the one that's been on Hulu and Filmstruck and now Criterion Channel is a Criterion print, and I believe it has the Wacky C. It does. It does. Yes. It has the Wacky C. Criterion has the rights to this print of it. I believe it has been released on some of those bargain basement DVDs where you get really bad transfers of the Hitchcock films. I was actually doing a quick search uh, a few weeks ago just to see if you could find it anywhere. And the only way you can find it now is even an out-of-print bargain basement DVD. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's one to definitely catch. Well, that is four films to catch on the Criterion channel that you may have missed. Jean Renoir's Tony, Akira Kurosawa's Derzu Uzala, Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows, and Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage. Highly recommend all of those films, especially if you're trying to dive into the works of some of the great masters of cinema. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you online? Good question. I would say probably the best place is in the Criterion Now slash 25th Frame Facebook group. It's still mm. just called Criterion Now, but that's the best place to find me. I do tweet sometimes at AWS505, and I'm on Letterboxd under DSNT. But yeah, you can see me talking about stuff online or on Facebook. Great. Great. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at 25thframemedia.com or joshhornbeck.wordpress.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. If you like Criterion Channel Surfing, make sure to check out all the other great shows on the 25th frame. Each month we spotlight a show on the network, and for November we're highlighting The Complete Podcast. Hosted by Matt Gasteyer and Travis Trudell, The Complete Podcast tackles the filmographies of some of the world's greatest directors one film at a time. They've tackled the films of Stanley Kubrick and Elaine May, and now they're deep into the filmography of Krzysztof Kieślowski. Each episode takes us on a deep dive into the filmmaker's body of work and offers thoughtful analysis of the film's themes and ideas. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts out there. I put it on just as soon as a new episode's released. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of the 25th Frame, a collective of cinephiles, pop culture aficionados, and creative minds whose goal is to contextualize the content we consume in an interesting, inclusive, informative, and culturally relevant way. The 25th Frame is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the network at patreon.com slash criterion now. You can also support Criterion Channel Surfing directly at patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. We'd like to thank this month's new Patreon supporters, The 25th Frame, Jesse Athey, Nick Everett, Michael Hutchins, and The Good Times Great Movies Podcast. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. It means so much. 
Next month on the Criterion Channel Surfing Podcast, my guest and I will sit down to discuss family matters, family dramas to get us into the holiday spirit. But first, Aaron and I will return for a follow-up to today's episode in which we'll discuss films by master filmmakers that are available on other streaming services. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. The 25th Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.